Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. We have a great show for you today. Eric Kaner will be talking with us. Eric is an entrepreneur and analyst in like a dozen different tech domains. He's the principal of the KDW Group, which sells data center equipment, including embedded storage. He's got an MBA from Wharton in strategy, operations, and public policy, and also qualifying in finance. I met Eric because he worked in the same office space as me in Princeton, and every once in a while, we'd strike up conversation, which you'll hear about. He's the type of guy who will just talk to anybody, like engage with anybody. When he came to the studio, we talked for over an hour in a pretty wide-ranging conversation from business to technology. I learned a bunch of stuff from him about wireless technology and cell towers. And also, we talked about going green and how it's nearly impossible to sell programmers and server admins on energy-efficient servers, even though that's like exactly what they should be doing with their bottom line. Eric's just a really nice guy, and I really enjoyed sitting down and talking with him. Let's go. busy and you got a lot of stuff going on uh and you know as an entrepreneur i i kind of uh commiserate with <laughs> the difficulties of it um so well after i get this all wrapped up we'll go grab a cup of coffee sometime sure, and then sure. i'll kind of right. tell you all the things that have been right. going on in the background that you guys haven't seen so yeah yeah but you know being an entrepreneur finding a niche within the market how was it that you got into data centers what was data center the pull of it so it's a good question. So fundamentally, I am an analyst and you know, I'm an analyst, which is kind of a front end of being a strategist, right? So, so my background is in technology and then in telecom. I've been in telecom basically since 93, since I graduated from grad school, right? And so, you know, I've covered every part of the industry and I think the industry is kind of morphing into, you know, three specific pieces. Okay, there is data centers, there is the uh, cell site, and then there's the connectivity, right? Primarily fiber, but you know, that includes wireless or what have you, right? So if you look at kind of a three pole telecom world, um, each of the three is important in in very different ways. And in fact, they're fantastically different businesses, Mm -hmm. right? So we looked at it and said, okay, I've, I've done a bunch of work, quite frankly, in all three. You know, the one that I spent probably the most time on was the mobile part, right? The, uh, the cell sites. And one of the things that had been most intriguing to me is the evolution of the cell site. Um, so I'd spent a lot of time on the mobile side, and there's a lot of evolution in that specific segment where you're starting to see vertical services where the tower center uh, management companies are providing more services as opposed to having each cellular company come out and service their own gear. So that's one so thing. Just to, uh, that would be the company that actually manages the cell tower site, like a Crown Castle. That's or right. Like a, the, it can be a REIT. SBA or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay. American Tower. You got it. That's exactly right. And in some cases, I expect that... Um, 
that they'll turn into, at least some of those will turn into general purpose reads, right? So American Tower is structured as a read, although I don't think most people normally value them that way, right? So that said, another thing that's been happening or that they've talked about happening in the data, in the, uh, in the uh, cell site is micro data centers. And so that was kind of my first time of really thinking about what a data center is. And so, you know, Drew, that one of the things that we first started with, with was the modular cabinets and containment. And one of the reasons that that really kind of fit strategically, although it was really more opportunistic that the way it came to us, the reason that that really fits strategically is because we could make custom sizes that would fit in a hut at the base of a tower. Okay, that's very important. In fact, we continue to work in that area. Um, we're working a lot of times with companies that are doing work in IoT, especially smart cities type programs. Right. So, so that's one thing that we had worked on, and then that kind of naturally led us into thinking about the data centers, both because of our analysis, but also because we now had a product that was relevant to data centers. So can I stop you? So when Please. you're talking about actually putting uh, a hut or something at the cell tower, so you're actually right. talking about having a cell tower, there's power there, there's connectivity there. So you would actually put some kind of a building or shelter in that space and actually put computation in that hut is that is that kind of what that's you're talking exactly about? right so okay. if you want to think about what a what a tower site generally is you've got the the physical tower the steel tower right and you've got all kinds of radios up top right and and you know it used to be coax but now it's all fiber connectivity and then at the bottom somewhere you've got what i'm calling a hut right if it's if it's in a city it's actually a room or a closet in a building right but in there, you have, generally speaking, kind of the communications gear, which looks to you and me like a computer, right? And now they're actually bringing computers into that, uh, into that site to provide, you know, uh, sh you know short uh, latency services from the cell site. Now, you're obviously not putting a lot of stuff there, but you can put kind of the most valued content there. And so that's what we're seeing, especially, I mean, they've started... They probably started talking about this 15 years ago, and we really are only just seeing some um, some technology getting deployed there now, partly because, as you know, I mean, in what you do every day, power is a key factor, right? How much power do you have on a tower site? You have as much as you have, and you have no more, right? And so you're talking about baseload power, you know, which which is the hardest stuff to get there. And nobody's run more power out there so that you can run some extra servers. That's just not happening, right? So, but, you know, uh, and I'm happy to talk more about the, the tower sites as, as you like, but that really kind of was what drove us then into data centers because now we had relevant products for the data centers. Subsequently, um, we started talking with LED lighting manufacturer, which is a great way, again, to focus on energy efficiency, you know, in every application. And then uh, the, the third thing that I saw was the data storage technology. Data storage is terribly energy wasteful, right? And so we actually wound up, again, through happenstance, meeting somebody who introduced us to a company that has a terrifically energy efficient product 
for the data centers. Now that's more of an IT play. You know, the other the other technologies are really more uh, facilities based as opposed to IT based. But that's you know that kind of gets us into the conversation for data centers. You know about products that are going to help them manage their uh, their energy budget. So you know the, the the interesting thing about storage is that it's ubiquitous, and you know energy. We can we'll get into energy in a minute because I think that's you know so important. But just talking about storage and the very efficient storage fits back into that kind of they, they call it the fog, right? Or, or right. the edge of the fog is, that's right. is you depending take on cloud, where you put the edge, right? right. <laughs> you take the cloud and you bring it as close to somebody as possible. You call that the fog. I was talking to somebody about that recently and uh, <laughs> that was the dumbest name ever, but it was, it's, it's Oh, there's some competitors for that, but yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, you know, you're saying power is the most important thing and actually storage at that edge is very important. So, so things like Netflix, for instance, they want to get that as close to the customer as possible right. to save on their their cost of bandwidth, right? They don't That's have right. to move as much data by getting it as close to possible to the, the person. And there's ways to save and spend more on that, but that's but then so so that still kind of fits together, it seems like. Mm -hmm. You you've got this yeah, use so, case. So it depends on what data it is, right? So because not all data is created equally. Um, one of the things that we find is very high value data is the kind of stuff that's most likely to be pushed towards the edge. Okay. And the reason for that is very simple. Latency matters more for high value data. And one of the things that brings value is that it's more current or it's used by people who make more money. Okay. Very simple. Right. So think of, you know, uh, you know, a trading application. Right. So. And then there are some data that, quite frankly, is not as important. Think of cold storage, right? We call what we call cold storage or archiving, right? You know, that's not stuff that you would ever put to the edge. That's stuff that's much more appropriate to be more centralized, right? In a in effectively a, a lower cost, lower cost per bit data center, if you will, especially stuff that might not be served out to customers all that often. Think about it as long tail content, right? Now, uh, Netflix stuff, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. That's kind of a different model. It's, it's generally speaking lower cost, uh, because, you know, quite frankly, for two streams, you're paying, you know, 1068 a month or whatever it is, right? They're not getting a lot of revenue for that. And I think they just said they're going to spend $14 billion on original content this year. God bless them. Um, somebody's got to burn the money. I guess they are. <laughs> um, but, um, but that's not very highly valued content, partly because the content is in big chunks also. I mean, when we're talking about high def video, we're talking about very, you know, very high data volumes. Now, you know, that's great if you're selling storage. You know, right. I don't think I'm breaking any news there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to how that fits back into entrepreneurship, right? So you saw some opportunity and, you know, getting back into your, uh, your background. You have a computer science background, so you're still Recovering sort of computer scientist, that's right. right? So you're still <laughs> you're still sort of in that sector, but you morphed into something that's more sort of facilities related. That's right. Is that because you saw more of a value there, or you know, from a from an entrepreneurial perspective? Right. So so there's a certain opportunistic aspect to it, right? But you know, kind of one of my models for successful entrepreneurship is you kind of you know, lay out strategically what you think the domain is. You do an analysis to see whether that's true and you kind of true up, you know, your analysis against the strategy. And then you start in business and then you get feedback from customers. 
and the customers tell you, hey, you know, that, that thing that you sold me, that's really great, but it's not great for the reasons you told me, right? right. And if you actually listen, then you make, you have the ability to make a pivot, right? And so that's, that's one of the things that's happened to us where we kind of, you know, back ended into the data center space. And then once we were there, we wound up with a, an IT product. And actually, it's the IT product that I think is going to drive us forward. Um, partly because we originally, when we started selling it, thought it was a great uh, energy conservation play, right? Because it's a product that, you know, just it, it uses about one third of the power that a uh, traditional uh, storage device from a from a Dell or an HP would would uh, would use. So, you know, that's great. But that's it turns out that's not why people buy it. People buy it because it's a much more flexible product, you know, thinking about it more from an IT perspective. Now, I hadn't tried to get a product that more matched with my computer science background. But as it happens, when when the market started telling me, hey, this is a great product because it better supports, you know, virtualization of storage and uh, and virtualization of data centers software defined data centers and you know kubernetes and docker and and uh uh open openstack all of these technologies that are on the come i was like i'm home <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the actual product so you 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 um have ceph data right that's right am i pronouncing that right, that's right. okay yeah and so you have an arm based which ARM is the processor, right. uses a lot less power than the normal, you know, Intel x86 architecture. So would you mind just giving an introduction to that and why it's why it's a, a better product for sure. that kind of thing? So let me give you a, a little spiel and then I'll give you a little chronology there also. So uh, the name of the, the company is Embedded Technology. They're based in Taipei. And the, the product is the Mars 200 and 400 series. Okay, uh, the 200 is a product that was introduced in 2016, and the 400 was just introduced in May at OpenStack in Vancouver. Okay, so it's the newest thing, and the new product is a 64-bit version of the 32-bit prior uh, product. So, the thing that's really th that we thought was really great about this before is it that it was a software-defined storage product that was based on open source standards and so it was very inexpensive and we thought that our claim to fame was we were building this on an ARM-based board so that it used a lot less power than the Intel-based rivals from Supermicro and what have you, right? And so we thought that was really going to be a great calling card and we bashed our heads against the wall for about two years, right. okay? And the people who were actually buying it, they weren't saying, oh, this is great because it's saving us all this energy. They were actually buying it because it was a more flexible way to deploy the Ceph storage technology. And Ceph is an open, is an open source storage technology, right? Mm -hmm. So, and fits very well into kind of the OpenStack uh, way of deploying services. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so what we actually wound up with was a product that was very relevant for the growing software-defined storage market. And if you want to think of what is software-defined storage, well, you've kind of got virtualization. What virtualization really means is server virtualization. It's taking 
the hardware and abstracting its capabilities so that you can take computing jobs and put them on any one of many, many different servers, right? And in that way, you get much greater utilization of the server resource. You're kind of pooling the resources, if you will. Software-defined networking was kind of the next virtualization to come on. And so we're seeing that that takes on, that that has been on the come for probably five or seven years, right? right? And again, the thing that drives that is better use, utilization of the networking resource or communications resource, okay? So the third leg of the stool, the one that hadn't been virtualized yet, is really storage. And it's still, we're very, very early days there. Right. And Ceph is an effort to, to bring that third leg of the stool to the table. So... This is a technology that was developed, let's call it initially 10 years or so ago, as a, as a PhD project for a student out at uh, UC, uh, UC Santa Barbara, UC, no, UC Santa Cruz, I think it is. Isn't it funny how that happens a lot of the time, that some, yeah. so just some guy is working on a project and then it becomes, especially the open standards. I mean, Linus Torvalds, you That's right. made Linux, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't as if he thought that was going to revolutionize the world, but it, it kind of did. So, yeah, yeah, you got these smart guys talking to their professors, casting yeah. around for a PhD thesis. And I'd love to hear kind of what the original genesis was. of How did he pick this as a yeah. thesis topic? But, you know, next thing you know, he's working on his PhD. At the same time, he's got a band of brothers there and they launch a company. And yes, in this case, he actually does finish the PhD. Uh, the, guy, the guy's name is uh, Sage Weil. Mm -hmm. Forms a company um, that ultimately gets split out, uh, and it's called Ink Tank. Ink Tank, you know, then is supporting this uh, Ceph technology. They're basically a professional services firm. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, hey, we'll help you impl implement this open source storage technology on what we call bare metal servers. Right, which is kind of the fundamental of virtualization. And so they start building up a nice little business. Red Hat takes a look at him and says, we know a little bit of something about, uh, you know, open source technologies on bare metal. You know, this looks like a good strategic division, uh, a direction. They pick up Ink Tank. They buy it, you know, for several hundred million dollars. You know, really a bargain. They've really done a terrific job driving that business, by the way. And now... They've got a terrific uh, storage business in addition to their virtualization business, right? In, in addition to the, to the Linux business, right? And, you know, they're off to the races. I mean, very, very competent organization. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, one that we're, we're working on and hopefully we'll have some deals to announce within the next year with them. So, you know, that's, again, part of entrepreneurship, right? right. You want to find somebody who's, you know, technically aligned but has more market power than you. Right. So you can kind of ride their coattails. Right, right. So, and that's that's the case for the Red Hat guys. And again, it wasn't us who who kind of sat back and said, who, who should we partner with? <laughs> right. Oh, Red Hat. No, it was actually customers who said, you know, this would be really great. I'd much prefer putting my Red Hat storage on this than on the stuff that I'm buying from Supermicro or what have you. Right. Say, well, you know, you hear that from three or four customers, and even we can figure out that that's a direction that we might head. Uh, we have to take a break. We'll be back in just a second with Eric Kaner on Good Data.
Today's episode is brought to you by GreenLane Design. GreenLane has been designing, engineering, and building critical facilities for over 10 years, from small server rooms to major data centers for Fortune 100 companies. GLD has consulted with dozens of companies to improve their energy efficiency and reliability with smart solutions like building management and aisle containment. If you would be interested in a free assessment, go to greenlanedesign.com. Click on contact and mention the podcast. So another interesting part of this is that you were talking about energy conservation, which is a huge piece of this puzzle. And it's something that is a hard sell because it's something that happens down the line. It's not that I'm paying something right now. It's that I'm shelling out money now to save money over time. And a lot of times it's not the facilities guy who's paying that energy, right? Depending on the organization. Right. So sometimes you're just sending a dead letter. Right. You know? (laughs) And, and it depends, right, it depends on how it's organized within the company because a lot of times the, uh, the IT people have no idea what the utility bill is, right. so they don't care. Or sometimes the IT people do know, and so they really care. But either way, there's this, there are all these levels of disconnect between the actual servers and how much they take and then the data center itself and how much the cooling costs. And, you know, there, nobody, there's no universal language for that. And uh, so, you know, I've, there was a report a long time ago by Emerson that said that every, <clears throat> every watt that's saved on the actual uh, compute or storage ends up being an additional 2.3 watts of savings. Because, yeah, because the processor itself takes up a, uh, an amount, then it, we're talking about the processor, not, sure, not right. the actual box, but then the power supply takes up an amount, then the UPS, the, the battery backup takes up an amount. And so if you if you add all that up through the entire stack and it compounds with the uh, air conditioning because then yeah, you have a to multiplier. Cool it all. Yeah. And so, you know, it's actually one of the best places to attack is is at the the software end or the compute end. So but nobody knows that because the the metric that people use in the industry is power utilization effectiveness, which is a data center metric that has to do with the actual efficiency of the data center. So sorry I'm talking so much. No, no, this (laughs) is good. But uh what's interesting about that is that sort of a byproduct of what you're doing, not the initial focus, but the byproduct from an actual energy efficiency standpoint is that by introducing this technology, they're sort of accidentally improving, a lot, a, a, very much improving the total power efficiency of their... Well, it really is. I mean, what you're talking about is best practices, mm-hmm. right? And it really is a best practice to use as little energy as you need and that means exploring innovative products, right? right? Now, not everybody has the capability, quite frankly, of trialing every innovative technology. They just don't. And, you know, I, I deal here in the in the real world. I get it, right? I'd love everybody to trial my product, but quite frankly, I don't have that many demo units anyhow. <laughs> so, but that said, um, you know, I, that multiplier effect is real. I believe it. I I can't tell you what the right number is. You know, is 2.3 the right number? Is it higher or lower? I don't know. But I know that it's not 1.0. Right. 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 That that I'm sure of. It's well well above that. So uh, I'll leave that to smart guys like you to figure out. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, so one of the things that we do in order to save power in this particular um, configuration, let's just talk about the Mars 400, is we, ha- we support in 1U, eight storage drives. And those can be either 
uh, SSDs or HDDs. Doesn't matter, you can mix and match. Um, and each of them has a dedicated microserver, an ARM microserver. So that means in the box, to support eight drives, we have eight ARM processors. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of compute. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of compute. Even at that, we use in our 1U box two th uh, one third of the power that a Intel Xeon-based uh, box would use. So can you say, so uh, ARM is a, is a company and also an architecture. Right. Um, so can you talk just a little bit about why that's more efficient and, and what is kind of the, the secret sauce of the ARM processor? Well, the key thing is that it's a, it's a risk processor, right? Reduced instruction set processor. And because of that, you know, the, people, the reason people have kind of moved to risk, and this is really something that's 30 years old, right mm -hmm. um, is you know to to make things simpler and in this case that simplicity means you have less circuitry if you have less circuitry then quite frankly you know you can run cooler you know i'd love to give you a more technical definition than that but i'm a software guy right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no but it is interesting. i mean that that is sort of the secret sauce and and the risk has been around for a while i think macintosh used to use a risk processor in their uh laptop and units. even people who didn't use risk processors per se used you know some elements of risk in their computing devices so and and you're right you know as far as more mobile platforms and and Apple was more mobile than most, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly, uh, and and obviously on the phone side, right? You know, risk is very well adopted there, right? Because power is so important. You know, having that technical background, I think, really helps to sort of lend credibility to a sales. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, it's important to be able to back up whatever you're saying in a sales side with the technical knowledge and the background. And you know, I know that you. You were not only a uh, technical guy, but you also went to business school. And uh, so that's kind of how the entrepreneurship comes back. But I think you also kind of studied finance. Is that, and is there a yeah. reason you're not doing that? Or <laughs> Well, so, so that's funny. And it's a good question. When I actually started uh, working on my MBA, is back when I was working for Data General up in Massachusetts, which Data General is obviously now part of EMC and has been for 25 years, right? Um, but I actually started studying finance because I was interested in finance. And what I found over time is, as interesting as I found that, you know, I was also very interested in strategy. I was interested in negotiations. I was interested in how decisions are made in a business environment. And I was interested in public policy. So I wound up, you know, kind of bringing a whole bunch of things together. And, you know, even though I studied engineering, as an undergrad, I took a bunch of high-level business classes because of my outside interests, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I got to grad school, I wound up waiving most of the core, which you wouldn't think is a normal thing for an engineer, but because I had already taken the accounting and the finance and, you know, the basic management and organizational structure, all that stuff, mm -hmm. you know, I was able to waive almost all the core, which gave me 19 courses to play. So I wound up actually with, you know, a whole bunch of majors, depending on how you want to count it in grad school. And, but my, my interest really was unbounded. You know, I wanted to know a lot of things. One of the great things about 
studying in a graduate business program as opposed to things like, you know, a medical program or whatever is you get a chance to do a lot of freelancing. You're learning how to. You're not really necessarily focused on the theory per se. You get a little bit of that, but not very much. It's a very practical degree. Mm -hmm. And so I was learning about how to do X and Y and Z. In fact, even now, when I go back for reunions, you know, time after time, you know, I'll talk to professors, either professors that I had or now that it's been over 25 years since I graduated. A lot of times it's professors who were not there when I was there. Right. right? And they, they tell me the same thing again and again and again. When when graduates come back, they never come back for the hard skills. They never come back to talk about finance. They never come back to talk about accounting. They never come back to talk about any of those. They come back to talk about the soft skills. They come back to talk about management issues. Mm -hmm. They come back to talk about negotiations and how they handle these kinds of things, which I thought is fascinating because in, you know, if you, if you look at people who run any company, regardless of the size of the company, they generally have come up through the marketing and sales side. Right. Generally speaking, Mm -hmm. they don't come up through R and D. They don't come up through accounting. Well, they may come up for through accounting to fix a company that's broken. Right. But that tends to be a transitory period. Right. So those people are there because they have superior soft skills. Right. They know how to to get people to want to do things that are in the best interest of the company. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that. You know, we, we, we tend to overuse maybe words like leadership, but, you know, that is the fundamental of leadership, you know, getting people aligned with the vision of where the company needs to go and what we need that person to do. Right. So, so in terms of soft skills, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot to talk about there. I mean, obviously that's, that's a big thing in business school is, is explaining to, or, you know, working through some of those soft skills, but it also sometimes feels undervalued. I don't know (laughs) that, that, uh, it's interpersonal relationships, the ability to listen and have feedback and help to guide someone. Uh, so how does that, and what you're talking about is sales. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of selling to somebody their job sometimes if in a leadership position. So, um, so what, like, you know, I, I am currently looking at like Drucker and, you know, sales stuff. And so what if, if you could recommend a book to somebody of, of learning some of those soft skills, do you have one that you could recommend? Uh, you know, I always like to go back to the classic. Uh-huh. You know, I think it was published in 1928, Think and Grow Rich. Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, Napoleon Hill. You know, it's... A classic of classics of classics, right? Uh-huh. And what he did in that book is he basically interviewed a number of the top, you know, entrepreneurs at the time, the richest people in the world, you know, specifically in the U.S. And, he's, and he tried to draw some draw some commonalities about, you know, what's similar about these people. And that's where he came up with things like the concept of the mastermind group, right? Which, you know, I think we've... It's kind of entered the parlance, you know, almost a hundred years ago today. But still, you know, having a group. I'm not sure what the mastermind group is. So the mastermind group, very simply, is you know, getting a a group of people who have your interests at heart to listen to your ideas about how you're going to drive the business forward. And specifically, what he says there is, you know, they have to be people interested in your well-being, 
you know, for your sake. So in general, he's saying, don't have it be your family, right? They want you to succeed, but maybe they want you to succeed their way, right? right. So, you know, have it be people who are friends and professional contacts and those kinds of things, right? Who are interested in your well-being. But it's also really important when you're constructing a mastermind group that you bring people in with very different perspectives, mm. right? You don't have a bunch of people who have, you know, let's say a background in finance. Even if your business is a finance business, it's really important to have people who have widely varied experience, right? They don't necessarily need to be, you know, all the smartest or most experienced people that you know. That's not as important. The important thing is that they have their heart and minds in the right place and that they have different sets of experiences from you so that they can provide you that feedback that you can then use as appropriate, right? It It's not to say that you should just, you know, wholeheartedly adopt anything they say, you know, gosh, I don't think we even do that with our wives, do we? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so you you must have a mastermind group of your own to some extent. So how did you cultivate those relationships. Yeah, so I'm going through right now a restructuring of the company to focus more obviously on the storage technology, right? And so how I affect this transition, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of different ideas, but I've bashed this around with a bunch of different uh, friends of mine. Now, I've never brought them together as a group per se, but they're all on the same email chain oh. so that I'm sharing with them kind of the blast of here's what's going on. And then I'll often get feedback, you know, from just one or two of them for each email, you know, which says, oh, well, make sure you're considering this or don't forget about that. Because, you know, over time, I've got a different relationship with each of them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I had sent that to you, Drew, you probably would have responded with something about, well, don't forget about what you did here, right? Or, hey, remember a, a year ago we talked about that. You know, how does, how does that affect, right. you know, uh, what you're doing now? You know, so, you know, that's one of the great things about bringing a disparate group of people together. And in, in, in today's world, quite frankly, it's hard to get, you know, all these people in the same room. And it's not necessary. You know, even scheduling a conference call. Oh, it's oh my gosh, yeah. it's de it's terrible, <laughs> right? So you know, I still you know maybe I'm kind of old school here, but I use email. Right. I still use email. Yeah, I do group text when I have to, you know. Yeah. But generally speaking, I use email. It's a much more it, it's a very flexible way to get feedback from a number of people. And again, I'm sure that you know of the six or so people in that group that I'm sending the email to. I'm sure that two of them probably aren't reading, you know, everyone, right? So every time I send it out, I'm guessing probably three or four people read it, mm -hmm. right? Because they're all busy. Yeah. No yeah. surprise, right? But when they do read it, I get great feedback, right? Right. right. And the next time I talk to the people, oh, you know, Pat might say, oh, you know, uh, I was meaning to get to you on, on that last thing. How does that, how does that affect the, the smart cities guys that you were talking to before? Right. Or, you know, what's the patent strategy there? You know, I mean, you know, especially if you're going into these third markets. Right. So, you know, a bunch of different considerations that I might not have thought about before, mm -hmm. but because of the people in that group and maybe it's not technically a mastermind group, 
but it's indistinguishable from from what Napoleon Hill read, wrote read, wrote about. So, but it's interesting that you that you ask about the book because that's something that's been on my mind. In fact, a friend of mine from high school, uh, Blaine Elkers, out in Arizona, has, is in the process of producing an abstract of uh, Think and Grow Rich, and you know, so maybe by the time people see this, maybe that'll be available. Yeah. Well, I, I'm interested because I, I just want to sort of learn more about, uh, you know, I have my own company and I want to learn more about how to grow it and make it a better company. And, uh, you know, I think the other nice thing about about having that mastermind group is that they uh, are somewhat disinterested in that they can tell you the truth <laughs> rather yeah. than your family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's hard to find as somebody who's honest. And, and uh, you know, especially in, in business, there's a lot of people who you work with who have their own agenda. So finding a group that doesn't have its own agenda can be challenging. I mean, there's, you know, but there are good people out there that you can work with and find. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on, I guess, hadn't thought of it that way, but building my own mastermind group. And yeah, know, we so talk I'll, about I'll, it as a network, but yeah. you know, there, there are different levels of your network, right? So that closest level of your network, if you want to think of those as a mastermind group, that's not inappropriate. <laughs> being challenged in that way can be hard. And, oh yeah, yeah. You know, so so as an entrepreneur, it it takes a little bit of uh, like uh, I guess more ego or less ego, depending on how you think about it, to be able to take that if even if it's criticism and and keep going and and internalize it, or sometimes to disregard it and keep going as you are. <laughs> sure. um, so you know, I, I guess uh, is you know obviously there's there's difficulties in, in keeping a business going. So so what strategies do you have for, uh, you know, continuing to stay in business, keep in business? You've been doing this for a long time, you know, uh, diversifying your... I haven't, you know, I haven't had a W-2 job since 2008, something <laughs> nice, like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, and that was back when I was on Wall Street. That was only for five years. And, you know, outside of that, I hadn't had one since, I don't know, 2000, right. since my little guy was born. Right. Something like that. <laughs> so, so how do you keep in the marketplace? How do you, you know, keep yourself interested, engaged, and and you know, keep your head above water, and you know, all that. So, let's talk about intelligence. Okay, um, everybody that we deal with on a daily basis is intelligent. There are really smart people in this in in this industry. Right. Every customer you deal with is smart. Now, sometimes they do stupid things. Hey, so do we, right? So don't worry too much about that. They're all smart. They're all very talented, right? But the people who are the most valuable in that group are the people who don't just learn from their own experience, but they listen to other people, right? So it's going I, back to those soft skills. That, right. You know. And and no, that, that you're exactly right. Um, and, you know, if we kind of kind of rewind the tape a little bit to the earlier part of the conversation, you know, with embedded, you know, I heard three or four times, you know, from customers that, yeah, the energy efficiency is nice, but it's the flexibility of the product, right? It's the, it's the ability to reconfigure because it's just one U and I can get eight devices in one U and I can repurpose things, you know, on a moment's notice. And, you know, those things are the things that really made it more saleable. Hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't take the feedback the first time somebody said it. Mm -hmm. If I was really smart, I would have, right? 
I didn't. I probably didn't do it the second time, but about the third or fourth time, all of a sudden, even Eric can get smart, right? right. So, you know, the one of the marks of really intelligent people or really successful people is, yes, they're intelligent, but they also listen to other people. That doesn't mean that the people that they listen to are smarter than them. No, no, but they've got useful insight. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, if you're going to construct a mastermind group, you don't have to have people who are smarter than you. They need to have a different insight, right? They need to have a different angle, some different experiences. And those are the people who can, who can teach you, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, uh, that my kids always laugh at is that, you know, if they get an el- in an elevator with me, they know I will talk to the other people in the <laughs> And I embarrass the crap out of them. Right. right. And the kids are used to me embarrassing them. In fact, I told them one of the principal jobs of a parent is to embarrass the children. <laughs> so, and the the reason that I do that is not, I mean, it, it's always to set, good to set an example for the kids. But I'll do that even if the kids aren't there. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is I now have dead time. It may only be 30 seconds. Who knows what I can learn in 30 seconds? Yeah. You know, now I don't get in the elevator and say, so what do you do? Who are you? What do you do? Right. You know, I may start, you know, with some kind of offhand thing. I mean, I'm, I, I never say, so nice weather we're having. <laughs> right, I never right. do that. Right. But, you know, I'll remark on something and see if they take the bait. And then who, who knows, you know, what idea I'll get. I mean, I, I, a lot of the, the breakthrough ideas that people get are from orthogonal fields. Right. So you may be thinking about how to sell data storage devices to enterprise customers. But all of a sudden, out of left field, you'll I'll hear something from my brother about, you know, the concerns for the zoning officer in East Brunswick, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, something that they needed. And all of a sudden I say, wait a minute. I didn't consider that. There are other people involved in this decision at, at, at uh, you know, Bloomberg or whatever. And, you know, I've got another way to go at this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we've had a, a terrible time trying to get into one uh, money center bank, which we know is interested in our technology, but has not trialed our product, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been banging my head against the wall trying to get response from this one... Uh, this one uh, IT person there. And then I figured out, hey, I can go at this another way through people that I know on LinkedIn, you know, old friends of mine who I haven't talked to in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And now I'm getting an entree there. And then there's another friend of mine who I was looking at partnering with on another project. And he's got, you know, some good contacts there. So now I'm looking at multiple ways to try to get into that customer because if you actually do account planning and almost nobody does account planning, by the way, you know, if you actually do account planning, which requires the analysis and the strategy, right, then you start opening up opportunities. So I don't remember what your question is, but I'm just rambling. No, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this is all about. I, I mean, you know, just learning about, uh, you know, because what you're talking about is is sort of sales in, in a way. Like, you know, being able to – sales is uncomfortable. And so, you know, they talk about the elevator pitch. So being able to just talk to somebody in an elevator is a very useful skill and not many people – 
do it or can do it. You got practice. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's it's. I think it's a scary thing for most people. In fact, for me, it's a it's a it's a anxiety inducing feeling to be like, oh, I've got to you know come up with something interesting to say to this person, and I think that's pretty normal. So yeah. just the fact that you, uh, I don't know if it is a challenge for you, but the fact that you do that is fantastic practice for that sort of sales mindset. Well, let me give you an example of that. So uh, my uh, my sons both went to St. Joseph High School here in Metuchen. And, you know, one of the reasons that we sent them to St. Joe's was, you know, the academics are good. The academics are not great, but they're good, right? But they also build men, okay? Uh, it's an all-boys school. And... Uh, one of the ways they do that is by having the the teachers maybe more available than they might be in some other schools, right? Um, you don't go to you don't go to work at St. Joe's because they're going to pay you the most money. You go, you know, you you have to have a reason to want to work at St. Joe's. Okay, it's got to be beyond employment, right? Mm-hmm. So that said, one thing that uh, that they encourage and that we pushed with both boys is every day I want you to have at least a one-minute conversation with an adult, one-on-one, at least one one-minute conversation every day, right? And that is a terrific experience because you can imagine, you know, what, what we were like when we were 14-year-olds. The last thing we wanted to do was have a one-minute conversation with an adult right. that we didn't know. Heck, we didn't want to talk to our parents for a minute, right? <laughs> right, right? So, you know, putting them in a position where they need to be uncomfortable is a growth opportunity, mm-hmm. right? So you say sales is uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. There are people maybe for whom it's more comfortable than others, but fundamentally, especially when you're talking to somebody cold, you don't know who they are. You don't know what their background is. It's difficult. It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's necessary. Mm-hmm. If you want to reach the potential for you or for your company, you need to put yourself in positions of growth, right? right. I mean, and I, I'm kind of conflating personal growth with company growth uh, for all the good and obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you, you know, sitting down with me. I know, you know you're a busy guy, and I, I, we kind of set out uh, a certain amount of time, so we're, we're butting up against that time. Uh, but I, I'd just like to sort of uh, give you a little bit of time. You know, we talk so much about Embedded and, and everything else, but um, what are you excited about in your marketplace? Like what, what is something that is coming up? That you would, you know, we, you can talk about Ceph, you can talk about OpenStack, uh, but you know, maybe something that's a little even a farther reach. What what is exciting you about uh, the current market? So you know, I've got a I've got a buddy named Steve who I've been talking to a lot over the last couple of weeks, and um, you know, he's kind of becoming almost part of that mastermind group, at least you know for a little period of time here. And one of the things that we've kind of kicked around is, you know, how we think the, the overall enterprise IT environment is playing out, right? Um, and so there are factors, exogenous factors that will be important, such as energy efficiency. But, you know, the overall architecture, I think about how things are playing out from a, 
from an enterprise IT perspective is, you know, it used to be everybody had stuff on-prem. And then there was a certain centralization, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Bloomberg or what have you would have a central IT, you know, group, right? And now people are saying, oh, you know, put everything up in the cloud and AWS and Azure and Google Cloud are growing like, crazy right yeah. maybe if an oracle is who knows i mean it's hard know. to tell <laughs> yeah, it's hard, hard to tell yeah. you know and you know they could be the blind squirrel so um that said um what i think is you know the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other it never stops in the middle mm -hmm. i think we're more likely to see a long-term it environment where you will have more of a hybrid environment where you'll have some on-prem uh, technology, and you'll have some in the cloud. And what I think the way that's ultimately going to bifurcate is anything that's providing services to customers will wind up being in the cloud because you can kind of push that closer to customers if you want to think of it that way. And anything that's going to be basically provide services to employees is more likely to be on-prem. Now, I don't think people are thinking about things that way, uh, but I think they will. And, um, and, you know, it, I mean, I think when I explain it that way, it's probably pretty obvious, right? <laughs> why, why it would break that way. But, you know, right now, I think there are a number of CIOs who are far too doctrinaire with how, you know, with, with what they want to do. And part of it might be they want to get a name within the CIO community as being someone who's forward thinking or whatever. That's not necessarily in service to their company. Right. And so I'm always a little bit cautious about that. I mean, hey, I'll sell data stores to anybody. Right. right? Uh, well, maybe not exactly anybody. Anybody who, who the government lets me sell. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I have no interest of seeing the inside of a jail. Uh, but, right. um, but, you know, um, I, I think the people who are most forward thinking are the ones who are most interested in kind of carrying the banner for their companies, right? And a lot of that, one of the things that I'm very encouraged about, you know, more generally is the idea of these things like, you know, on the, on the you know, local side meetups, but also any other uh, way of kind of um, sharing best practices and ideas. You know, the fact that, you know, a lot of the business leaders that I really respect are active in, you know, sharing their information, not just in their company, but more broadly, you know, is really heartening because quite frankly, I think it makes them smarter and they, they bring other things then back to their company. But also I think it makes, uh, you know, the industry and the country more competitive and, you know, Hey, I'll wave the flag for America here. Right. <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, that kind of goes back to open source, you know, open sourcing something is, is, pulling back the curtain and saying, here's what we do and allowing that to make you better by having people actively critique it and adjust it and, and you know, it, yeah. and build on it. And, and, and that makes the ecosystem better. And sometimes there's a central uh, authority on those, you know, uh, pushing that out and, sure. and making the final thing. But, you know, as a company, I think there's, there's real value in open sourcing as much as possible. Right. So it, it's a similar thing. I mean, you know, you talk about the open source technology with the storage and, you know, there's there's so much that can be gained from a uh, abilities perspective, a security perspective, 
counterintuitively, you know, you think uh, asking people what, you know, they think of your security improves your security, really. Well, think about just in your daily job, right, in, in you know, engineering for data centers, right? Um, you probably have, for certain engagements, a punch list, right? Now, I'm guessing the, the genesis of that punch list wasn't you and your dad sitting down and saying, what do you think is important here? Let's, let's list them out. Rather, you probably started by going to the web and researching this, and you've probably found a punch list. And you said, hey, let me use this. And then you said, okay, these eight things don't apply to us. And, you know, these other seven do, but they're not detailed enough, right? And you probably use some version of open source, you know, checklisting to come up with that. And as you add a new practice or a new area that you're looking to serve clients, you probably do something, you know, some adapted version of something like that, right? You know, we can think of it as creative. We can think of it as smart or prudent. But it is open source. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the, in the data center space, there, there's more of a push than there ever was. Uh, the open compute, uh, which is, you know, having Facebook, yeah. Facebook, yeah, started the open compute project and, and actually put out not, you know, the plans that they put out for their data centers were good. They're not complete, but they're good. I mean, it's helpful to have basic guidelines on what they're doing. And it's interesting ideas that are sort of outside of the mainstream and well they're smart people yeah that doesn't mean all of their ideas apply to you right but a lot you know if you look through enough of them you'll get some nuggets right right and and you know especially being able to sort of see the thought process of why they got to where they are um is very interesting so i i wish more companies would would (laughs) take that initiative and and share yeah and that's part of the reason i i wanted to do this podcast is to to be part of the conversation about that because uh, I, I just enjoy talking to people and learning and, and growing as a, as a business person and also as a, you know, a, a person interested in, in these topics. So I think on that note, uh, I want to say thank you very much, Eric. Uh, I really appreciate you talking with me and, uh, you know, and I look forward to seeing what you're going to do next. Well, I'm looking forward to, to seeing, uh, you know, where you put this. And, uh, you know, I'll put it up on my LinkedIn page and uh, look forward to, to seeing what comments come back. Great. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for That's our show. I'd like to thank Eric Kaner for speaking with us. And I'd like to thank our sponsor, Green Lane Design. Remember to mention the Good Data Podcast to get that free assessment. That helps everybody. Our music is algorithmically created by Juke Deck, which is pretty amazing. Try it yourself. Uh, visit jukedeck.com. For Good Data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. Talk to you next time on the podcast.